How She Does It is proudly supported by iShares, a global leader in ETFs. With over 1,250 products worldwide, iShares is dedicated to providing you with cutting-edge investment solutions for an ever-changing market. Let your best investor out. Take control of your investments and learn more about the importance of incorporating ETFs into your investment strategy. Visit iShares.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. If you're new to our show, welcome. On every episode, you'll be listening into a conversation with a female leader who's trying to find her way, just like the rest of us, while also being out there as an inspiration for a whole new generation of leaders. On today's episode, we're sitting down for a conversation with Erica James, Dean of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and I couldn't be more excited. Wharton is generally considered to be the premier undergraduate business school in the world, and it's consistently in the top three graduate business schools. I don't have an MBA myself, but I did go to Wharton for undergrad. And actually, I told my parents I was only applying to Wharton, and if I didn't get in, I wasn't going to college, which is obviously a stupid plan, but thankfully, they took me. And if any of my four kids had tried that plan with me, well, let's just say we would have had a minute. But let's talk about Erica James. She is the first woman and first woman of color to be appointed dean in Wharton's 142-year history. Before coming to Wharton, she was the dean of the prestigious Goisweta Business School at Emory, where she was the first black woman to ever be selected as dean at any business school in this country. She has a PhD in organizational psychology, and she's the author of two books on crisis management. Her most recent, The Prepared Leader, is a new favorite of mine, so we'll dig into that as well. Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Erica, I know many of us have considered careers in academia, not me actually, but many do, but I don't think people often consider becoming a dean. So early in your career, did you set out to one day do this? What was your position? How did you end up here at this moment? It's a great question. I refer to myself as the accidental academic because I actually had no intention of becoming a faculty member, much less a dean, at any point in my life until essentially I was one. As background, I studied psychology in college because I was following in the footsteps of my stepfather, who was a clinical psychologist. And when I was graduating, I realized I have no idea what one does professionally at, with a psychology undergraduate degree. So to prolong the professional decision, I just went to graduate school and got this PhD, not fully appreciating that the PhD degree was preparing you to become a faculty member and to, to do research and teach at the collegiate level. So it, near the end of my graduate career, I had some job offers, one in the consulting realm and then one in, actually two in the corporate sector. And thought that was the path I would pursue until the last minute. My dissertation advisor said, why don't you try academia for a year? If you don't like it, you can always go the corporate or consulting route. I tried it my first year. One year led to two, led to five, led to 10. And I found myself in this academic career that I actually really enjoyed. So Virginia was when I had my first major leadership role, and that was as the head of our non-degree executive education programming, which was a big business at UVA. And it was I had P&L responsibility, and I had a staff that reported to me, and I was managing faculty and content, and I had sales and all of that. 
And then that's when I was on the list for search consultants who were looking for schools who needed to identify the next dean. And so Emory was that opportunity, the first dean opportunity. And then six years later, Wharton. Once you were at Emory, did you think, this is it, I'm staying here, this is where, this is where it was meant to be? Uh, no, although that was the second time I'd been at Emory. Earlier in my career, I had been on the faculty there much, much earlier. So this, I was going back to Emory. And, um, but I also, I was pretty young when I became a dean the first time. And so I knew that I probably wasn't going to retire there in that role. But I didn't know what was going to be next. And I wasn't actually looking for the next thing. So the opportunity at Wharton came to me. And it was something that you can't pursue because it is Wharton after all. Okay, I know we're on a podcast and people can't see you, but I I have to say you happen to be extremely beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful (laughs) business school dean ever. Do you ever feel that you need to sort of prove yourself to people that must come up? Uh, So, yes, especially early in my career, I felt that I was being judged, but actually less because of my physical appearance in the way that you describe um, in terms of attractiveness. It was more in terms of my being a woman and my being black in a business school setting at the level where there were very few women and black people in positions like I had, even as a faculty member, not even much less an administrator or a dean. And so I always have felt that I, I had something to prove. And it goes back to seventh grade social studies class when Affirmative action had just come out as a new tool by the government. And I was sitting in class. The teacher looked at me, is talking about the class and said, take Erica, for example. She'll get any job she wants because of affirmative action. Wow. And at the time, I remember just being humiliated because the class literally all turned and looked at me at that moment. But as I got older, that stuck in my head. And I realized nobody believes I got this job or this grade or this opportunity because I earned it, but I got it because of affirmative action. And so I've always had this um, mindset that I had to prove something, regardless of whether it was my gender or my race or level of attractiveness or, or whatever. So that, that's been with me forever. Well, since seventh grade. So, I mean, that's sort of a tricky situation to be in, right? And for women overall, but for Black women in particular, if if they're assertive, they're more likely to be seen as angry or aggressive and unlikable. But why is that? How do we change that? Or, and do you even care? Uh, As I get older, I care less. (laughs) But I think as I think about the young women, Black women coming up into their professional journeys, I care about it for them because I do know that they are very sensitive, and rightly so, to all of those issues that you described. Yeah, there are stereotypes around Black women in particular, and we are constantly trying to mitigate and navigate the nuances associated with that. So it matters less and less for me just because of the point where I am now, but it it does matter for the future generation of folks who aspire to be in leadership positions. How How do we address it? I used to think we addressed it. I took on the mantle of I needed to change the stereotype. And I I remember being very conscientious of not falling into the stereotypes that people had of, of, of Black women. I don't know that that's the right answer. And I think it forced me and probably others of my generation and certainly women prior to me to engage in the work setting in a way that was probably inauthentic. 
and therefore putting in a lot of energy to behave or be or act a certain way rather than putting energy into actually doing the work that they were hired to do and, and demonstrating their capabilities in a more authentic way. Uh-huh. There's that imposter syndrome for every woman, I think, and maybe it's more so for um, a black woman coming into a, a high profile position. But so I know you really want to make your own mark there and you have an agenda of things that you want to grow and build. And I want to tell you what things looked like when I was there and what was different and what's there now and see what you think. But here, here's what I noticed that the student body now is far more engaged in service than anyone in my generation, for sure. They're more interested in politics. Impact investing wasn't a thing. We never used those words together. Philanthropy was a thing, but it really was the idea of go out there and make a lot of money so that you could give back to the things that you care about as a philanthropist. ESG wasn't on the radar. Diversity, equity, inclusion, also not a cluster of concepts. So during your tenure, there have been some new majors, ESG, DEI, and a new coalition for equity and opportunity that you started. So can you talk more about that, what you're trying to do versus how it looked when I was there? So I think, obviously, you were at Wharton at the time that you're alluding to and have very vivid memories, good and bad, of the experience. And I think, like the rest of the world, Wharton has evolved. And part of that evolution is also mirroring the evolution in the student base and the generation of students that are coming to business school now versus X number of years ago. And it's important that we provide a set of opportunities and learning engagements for our students that mirror what's happening in the world. And right now, literally, I think the month or so that I started at, as dean at Wharton, the CEO Business Roundtable came out with their new commitment to shareholder value and their new commitments to ESG and their new focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which may have also been shaped by the fact that also within a month's time, uh, George Floyd had also happened and the world was talking about matters of racial justice and social justice. And so that was the ethos at the time that I was entering the Wharton School. And each cohort of students that have entered Wharton in the three years that I've been here, those have been top of mind issues for a large percentage of our incoming students. And they want to, to your point, they care about the society that they're living in. They are highly invested in finding ways to contribute and give back, not once they've made all their money, but even beforehand and all along the way. The choices that they're making in terms of the companies that they seek to work for, those companies better have a purpose and a, and a mission that's far greater than just profit. So our school has to both reflect what the student interests are, hence majors associated with ESG and, and DEI. But we also have a responsibility to say those things exist within the context of what actually drives society forward. And what drives society forward is commerce and the economy and learning how to navigate organizational life in such a way that you can achieve the results that allow for the sustainability of those organizations, which means profit does still matter. 
but it matters how you earn those profits now. And the students know that, and they're challenging organizations in that regard. And so it's this give and take. We need to be responsive to the students, but we also need to help navigate them and shepherd them in a way that they also fully understand another important purpose of business, which is, in fact, profit maximization for a variety of different outcomes. But I want to ask you about what we're seeing culturally at universities now. On many campuses, we have seen instances of speakers being shouted down and deemed unworthy to speak because they have differing viewpoints. So in 2023, do you feel we're in an academic environment where differing viewpoints are tolerated or can be tolerated or at least heard? It seems like the openness of an academic environment has really been shut down. Maybe openness is the wrong word. No, I think it's fair. I understand the premise of the question. And certainly there are ample examples that speak to what you're describing. I think it's a dangerous path that we're going down. When we talk about higher education as these liberal institutions, originally liberal meant open, right? It meant willingness to engage and talk and share ideas and communicate and debate. And liberal now means a political affiliation. And I think the distinction has gotten blurred in such a way that what is driving most of society, not just college campuses, are these factions that are generated based on one's political affiliation, if you will. And that seeps into the collegiate experience and the MBA experience and the law school experience and the medical school experience. And so, yeah, I see what you see. I see if people don't agree with me, whatever my opinion is, they must be bad or evil or wrong. And we have, I think we've lost the skill of learning how to have candid conversation that might even lead to debate and and recognition of differences, but we don't know how to engage productively in those conversations. And I honestly believe it is a responsibility of higher education to help bring back that skill set. So there are some things that we're hoping to launch within the Wharton context that will provide an opportunity for students to learn how to engage across differences, political and otherwise, because if we don't, I'm afraid of how this ends for colleges and universities and for society. So I am honored. I sit on the Wharton board uh, with you and many others. And one of the things that I find most interesting is some of the data we get from Wharton, particularly about the undergraduates. And it's fantastic. It's very interesting data. It tells us which jobs they took, which companies they're working for, what industries they're in, what their salaries are, what their earnings are, where they went by gender. And it's fascinating to me that the women usually make less than the men. And it's not because they're paid less for the same job, because many programs have the same first year payment. This is the package. Doesn't matter who you are. But it's because they choose jobs that pay less. So, for example, marketing versus data science or something like that. How do you think about that? I don't know. I'd love to hear what your reaction was when you saw this. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you shared that because, you know, the conversation in the U.S. certainly is, you know, we've got this pay gap between men and women. And it's easy to assume that it's based on discriminatory practices because an employer is intentionally choosing to pay women less than men. And while there is some of that 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 does happen, I think the bigger issue is exactly what you've described. 
there are different selection biases that people have. And part of this is there are certain jobs and professions and careers that are more highly valued by the marketplace. And so they will naturally pay at a, at a higher rate. What we tend to value tend to be jobs that are more quantitative in nature, for example, or jobs in the blue-collar sector that might have more physical labor. And men tend to be in those kinds of jobs and professions. So it's disheartening for me. I operate in the business school realm, and so there's a certain professional class of jobs that I'm most familiar with. And it's disheartening that we don't see enough women entering finance. We don't see enough women entering data science and some of the more quantitatively focused disciplines and therefore future careers. But I think that's work that we can do. There was a time when we didn't see women entering business schools much at all. So the fact that at a school like Wharton, women in the ABA level represent 50% of the class, that's major progress. So now that we have that group of women, what do we need to do to help shape their interests and sense of competitiveness in careers that are going to pay at the higher levels? And I think we will see that over time, but we've got to walk before you can crawl. And so we've walked now to 50% in the classroom. Now we got to encourage 50% in some of these more lucrative career trends. I think, you know, it's interesting at the last board meeting, at that last meeting, the faculty were there and there was a finance professor who came up to me and he said, why do we have fewer women in finance? There are over 50% of our students. Why is it? And I told him that I thought that if you major in finance, which I did, you are essentially saying to the world and to yourself, I want to make money, right? People don't go into finance for any other reason than that. And that didn't trouble me. I wanted to make money because money gives you power, right? My mother had very little power and I saw that how hard that was for her. And money is fun to have in that order, mostly in that order. But I, this is 30 years ago and I don't see that changing. So we still got a lot of ways to go. But this brings me to your life. You have had a very interesting career path, one very different than a lot of women. And we've talked about this. And you've had something of a commuter marriage for many years. And you've made hard choices that a lot of women are afraid to make when it comes to work and family. And I'm sure you've heard this. Sheryl Sandberg has famously said that your choice of a partner is the most important career choice you will ever make. So obviously this has resonated with you or you knew it already before there was a Sheryl Sandberg. How did this become your path? quick story. When I was very young, we had a housekeeper and we lived a pretty middle class life, but we had a, a housekeeper who would come. And my mother said to me one day, I need you to clean your room. I was like, why? When this woman, she's going to be here tomorrow, she can do it. My mother fired her the next day because she needed me to <laughs> have a better understanding of you know the value of work and people's and other people's work. <laughs> and so I knew I didn't like cleaning my room necessarily in that when I could afford it, I wanted a life where I would be able to spend the time doing the things that I wanted to do and not the things that I didn't want to do. <laughs> so back to the point about choices that I make now and, and having a spouse. Yeah, my husband and I met in an airport, which should have been clue number one, <laughs> that we were going to be spending a lot of time apart. He lived and had a professional career that was very different and, and took him different places than where I 
I was as a faculty member and dean and whatnot. So we were very intentional about wanting to support each other's careers and making choices that would allow us to have the family life that we wanted. So we do have two kids. We hired support because we both traveled. I wanted live-in childcare, and I got criticized for that as a mom. And I looked at it as this is just another person who loves my kids. So those choices weren't easy, but we were in it together. And he supported me, I supported him, and we supported each other as we were trying to raise our kids and and build this life together that was seen as pretty unusual. But it worked for us. And I try to communicate with our students, there are lots of options for building the life that you want to have. You don't have to be stuck on the one sort of more traditional pathway and assume that that's all there is, and then therefore sacrifice the jobs that you will take or the location of job that you will take because you think there's only one way to build a professional life with a spouse and build a family. I think there are multiple ways, and either they don't recognize it or they don't believe it. And so I've tried to demonstrate that and and talk about my own personal experiences in that regard. And now we're going to take a quick break. Are you ready to find a better way to invest? iShares, the global leader in ETFs, can help you take control of your portfolio and stay on top of your financial future. In a time marked by economic uncertainty, iShares helps investors unleash their potential with timely market insights from its investment strategy teams to help individuals make sense of current markets. No matter what the state of the world, you can pursue your financial goals. Let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com to explore investment insights and solutions. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. What do you think your daughter got from that? What do you think she... By the way, I know she didn't go to Wharton. I know you look... It pains you now. (laughs) Even on a podcast, you can see that it pains you. And so what is your hope for her and for yourself? Yeah, I know that she has observed every facet of my life and the life that I have with my husband, her father. And I think she's been very clear. She's even more clear than I was that she wants a certain lifestyle and she's very willing to work for it. So I think her choice to do that was a function of what she learned about being an independently minded person. And I think she got a little bit of that from me and watching me over the years. So I'm actually not at all worried about her and really grateful that she is creating the life that she wants for herself. And what about your son? Do you see him following in his father's footsteps? 
I have no idea. He actually is probably a lot like both my husband and I. He's an artsy kid, very cerebral, very intellectual, very confident in the best sense of that word. But he has professional aspirations that are very different from what my husband, who's an engineer and an executive, or me, who's a business and academic person, he he's going to choose a different career path. But he's also very confident in the work that he wants to do and is not swayed or does not feel pressured by the choices that my husband and I have made. So I'm really proud of both of them. They're going to be great for themselves. All right. I want to talk a little bit about your book. The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before. For people who have not read the book, obviously the message is about being extraordinarily prepared. I'll just say my husband had 500 rolls of toilet paper before there ever was a pandemic. So my question for you is to, you go into it in the book, but it's about the idea of being prepared for any eventuality but also not the specific thing itself, the idea of being prepared for the unknown. And tell us sort of if you can put it into just a few bullet points, but you talk about several of the things that one needs to be a leader, but how do you make a team that is prepared for anything, not knowing what anything may be? So part of it is just allowing ourselves to realize that as much as we like to think about our life and our careers and our organizations always going up and to the right in a hockey stick, there are always going to be things that we don't anticipate that are going to throw us off kilter. And we don't know what those things are going to be, but we can't assume that something is not going to happen. So just making that own internal psychological shift, recognizing that something is going to happen that's going to throw us off our game. So that's step one. Step two is sort of doing a deep dive to try to identify some vulnerabilities that your organization is privy to and thinking through what are the contingencies if X, Y, or Z happens. Now, ultimately, A, B, or C could happen, not X, Y, or Z. But if you go through the process of thinking through and sort of simulating how would we respond if X, Y, or Z happens, you're building this muscle, this capability in your organization and with your team to be primed for something to take you off your game. And so when that something does happen, even if it's not the something you prepared for, you have this muscle memory that allows you to be responsive and flexible and agile in a way that you wouldn't be able to be as a leader or as a, as a leadership team if you've not given some thought to something going awry. So that's a big thing. And then I'll just say one other piece of this is there's something happening to some company somewhere in the world all of the time. And the travesty is if we don't pay attention to what's happening to someone else and we're not learning from someone else's experiences and bringing those lessons back into our own, that's when we are ultimately unprepared because we've seen it somewhere else and we chose to ignore it or believe that it can't or won't happen to us. And so that lack of preparation in that regard is really troubling. Yeah, that last point. I mean, you talk about the metaphor of these birds, the swifts, mm -hmm. I think they're called, mm -hmm. and how they fly up into the atmosphere and sort of test the winds. Yes and sense when something's wrong and how on a personal level, people tend to dismiss or they don't want to face it. But it's about sort of 
I think just the idea of saying something will happen, something bad will happen. It is really thinking through, if something does happen, what do we need to do about it? Who should we be you know, talking with? Who should we be learning from? Who should we be, who's great at sort of communicating what's happening and who's great at calming the troops and who's great at, you know, identifying solutions. So those are some of the things that we should be paying attention to before we need to. Do you just look at some of the crisis management out there? Something like a Norfolk Southern comes to mind, which there'll be others depending, you know, next week there'll be something else. And just think, oh, my God, that was so dumb how they handled it. Forget whatever tragedy or financial mistake or whatever it is. Yeah. But just, oh, my God, how they handled it. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, what we have found over and over again is generally it's the poor handling of a crisis that creates more of a problem for the organization than the actual crisis itself. Tell me about a crisis that you think you did a really great job managing. And one where you really wish you could have done it over, where you learned a lot from it. Yeah. The one where I think I handled it as best as I possibly could under the circumstances. Early days during the pandemic, I was a new dean and we had to communicate to the students that we were going to be remote for the semester, a year, for however long. And as you can imagine, there was tremendous, tremendous disappointment with that decision and a lot of anger. And I did a virtual town hall and watching sort of the chat go through about how people are very upset as soon as I tell them we're going to be remote. And what I said in that moment was, I know that I'm new here and this is not the news that you wanted to hear. And it's certainly not the way that the first conversation that I wanted to have with any of you. And you don't know my track record, but I need to ask you something that I have no right to ask you. And I said, I need you to trust me. And in that moment, you saw all the chat change. You saw the emojis with prayer hands or thank you hands or we trust you, Dean James, or it's okay, Dean James. Right. It was just a moment that everything switched. And sure. People were still very agitated and frustrated and disappointed, but at least I felt like I had more time to demonstrate that I was going to try to do everything in my power to help salvage for them their year in this remote kind of environment. I think that's the one where I feel the most pride of having to change on a dime the sentiment of what was happening and and where that could have led. The idea that that was your crisis I mean, you literally you start what you're during the first month of the pandemic or so you're a name to this role. And then only a couple months after that, George Floyd and all of that upheaval. And then what you're talking about was actually in the late summer of that. Yeah. So, wow, that is that was a crazy time. Well, so you must have gone home that day feeling very good. Like I have a ton of work to do, but. Uh, proud of yourself. Yeah, a little, but more also I felt that I it, going back to your question you asked earlier, I felt like I had a lot to prove. Like they were going to be looking and expecting me to help them navigate and sort of create this experience for them even though it was not at all what anyone had expected. So I felt the weight of the job in that moment, but I also felt like I at least gave them something to hope for. And so 
yeah, it was sort of a bittersweet evening. <laughs> okay. And something that really you've, if you had it to do over again, you would have said, wow, I could have handled this better. I would have done this or that. Yeah. So it was the first time that I was a department chair. And I wanted to do something very different in the department for the curriculum that I was responsible for. And it was much more sort of in the experiential realm. And I wanted to create this, you know, setting where our students were going to do these mock businesses from beginning to end over the course of the semester. And like, in theory, it was a great idea. It was a lot of logistical challenge. It didn't go great at all. Like, it was bad. And I found myself sort of pointing fingers and placing blame and coming up with all of these excuses about why it didn't work. And months later, I realized, oh, that was that was a bad way to handle that. And I, it was not very leader-like. I needed to have just owned it and found a way to sort of make up for that. But in the moment, I was sort of like stuck in feeling sorry for myself. And that wasn't cool. I wish I could have done that over. Did you ever go back to them and say, you know what, I didn't handle this well and I should have been I'm sorry. Uh Yeah, well, yes and no. But by the time I reached that conclusion, sort of the semester had ended, and so there was no real way for me to convene those students again. But I did learn from it, and so I continued on as, as department chair, and I did talk with the faculty who were all in this with me, and we did sort of a after-action review and sort of what do we need to do differently? And, and how can we take those lessons still with the ideas that we wanted to pursue, but do it in a, in a different way? And, and I really leaned on my faculty. And that's where sort of one of the things in the book is understanding the importance of building a team who's willing to sort of be in the trenches with you and support you and, and um, allow you to make mistakes and still be there with you through it all. Yes, yes. There is an interesting phenomenon I've noticed, though, when you when there's a problem and, you know, many people are to blame. I, I have found that sort of coming in and just saying, you know what, this one's on me. OK, this is my fault. But how are we going to fix it from here? Yes. And it changes everyone's energy toward how are we going to fix it? Not how do I make sure I don't get blamed? Yeah, you're spot on. You are spot on because as a leader, you have to take responsibility. And that example that I just gave you was my recognition, realizing that I wasn't taking responsibility. And that was a really ugly, bad look. and I honestly was not setting the right example. So that lesson has stuck with me. So I, I don't want to say I'm quick to take responsibility, but when it's appropriate, right. and I make those my responsibility public, like I let people know uh -huh. that this was my bad and where do we go? And it immediately changes the... The energy. I'll tell you why it's so important to me. So I mentioned that my stepfather is a psychologist and he started an organization called the Center for Nonviolent Communication. So all while I was growing up, his work in the world was bringing groups together who didn't know how to communicate effectively. And you mentioned Palestine. He, my stepfather was, Jew, was Jewish. He's passed on now. Um, Palestine and Israel, like he worked with those factions. He worked with gangs in inner city Detroit. He's worked with, you know, all sorts of groups. And so I grew up learning the methodology that he used for bringing that together. So now as an adult, I'm seeing our world be so polarizing that it was important for me in a role that I now have as a leader to create change in this regard. It's important for me to find ways to take my sort of 
personal lessons, but also do something professionally that makes a difference in, in this regard. I'm really interested in hearing what you come up with in this area of productive disagreements, because it's such an important issue for our time. And I think you may be the one to do something great with that. Okay, before you go, I want you to participate with me in our lightning round, okay. which you, you may know as Would You Rather? And the only challenge here is that you can't think about the answer. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind at that moment. Okay. okay? Ready? Ready. Okay. Wine or scotch? Wine. Last one up or first one to rise? First one to rise. MBA or JD? MBA. Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Along those lines, higher base salary or chance for bigger bonus? Uh, ooh, salary. Flowers or food? Uh, food. <laughs> drive or be the passenger? Drive. Why do you say drive? You like driving. I like driving. And when our kids were young and we would drive to our summer home, I never wanted to be the one to have to be with the kids, to like manage the kids in the back seat. So if I were driving, then it got me out of having to deal with whatever was happening in the back seat. Yeah, I had a very similar thing. I always wanted to drive home so that I could drop him off to take the kids up and get them in the bath and all that. And I would go leisurely park the car. Right. Yes. <laughs> all right. Extrovert or introvert? Deep down. Deep down, I'm an introvert. Okay. Power or money? Money. Okay. <laughs> with money um, comes power. We always used to joke, Mom, would you rather your kid be successful or happy? And she would say, that's a dumb question. How can you be happy if you're not successful? <laughs> <laughs> Just an aside. Sorry to get you off track. Okay. Would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Oh, be moved. And what would you rather, a weekend with your husband or with your girlfriends? Husband. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. I hope this conversation was as compelling to you as it was to me. Thank you so much to Erica James for sharing how she lives her life and all the exciting things she's working on. I can't wait to hear more about her efforts with productive disagreement, something our world needs much more of. When you have a moment, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>